Yeah, a lot of people don't. And I think they've lost sight of what it means to make fun of something. We have, we've given that such a negative connotation. Oh, you're making fun of me and I should be upset about that. No, we're making fun. The key word is fun to not take things so dang seriously. Welcome to the Gary Scott Thomas Show. Here's what we know. The podcast with unexpected conversations. Listen each week as we engage in unscripted conversations where we'll be just as surprised as you will be with where the dialogue goes. So join us each week and be privy to the captivating conversations that are sure to ensue. Here's your host, Gary Scott Thomas. Welcome to the latest edition of Here's What We Know. And, you know, I'm going to be straight up with you. You guys need to listen to this and share this podcast because I know you're going to love it because I'm so excited about it. Guys like you, Dylan. Dylan White is who we're talking to. Guys like you kind of intimidate me because, A, you're so talented, and, B, you work hard. You don't get to have both. <laughs> well, then then I, I'll, I'll say this. I probably don't have both. I'm either faking my talent or it just seem like I work harder than I do. You shut up. Look, I'm telling you what, <laughs> listen, listen to this. This guy, this guy, and you can find his, his website, dylanwhite.com. Uh, he writes books. He does voiceovers. He's on national commercials that you would recognize if you heard. He is a comedian. And oh, by the way, he's an actor and he's been in Disney's production of Aladdin. And he's probably one of the best genies you've ever seen because he always does current jokes in the whole thing. And oh, by the way, he just happens to have time to talk to me for just a few minutes. How the, how, how? <laughs> well, how could I not make time to talk to you? <laughs> How did you how did you get into this? Were you the funny kid in school? And I always ask that about comedians because rarely, here's the shocker, rarely were they. Um I mean, I I think I've always kind of like, you know, had just kind of like that odd bent to it. It wasn't so much that I was I mean, I think I was kind of the funny kid, but I was more like I wasn't like the class clown and that I was disruptive. I knew my moments and I knew how to uh talk to teachers and administration or whatever in such a way that I wasn't like a normal kid, but I wasn't like the obnoxious one who they wanted out of their office. Because you're smart. You know, that's where most class count clowns fail is because they're just trying to be the raucous, hey, look at me all the time. But the truly smart kids, the kids who really understand how to do it, as you said, you pick and choose. You got to know your audience. You got to read the room. And that's hard. I mean, that, listen, there's not many kids who do that. I've got two kids, right? One of them can't read a room to save his life. And the other one, <laughs> he will say the right right word at the right time. Now, his downfall is he doesn't know how to win over rooms where the, the other one does. Oh, yeah. You know, because that that big, huge personality was was just the way it is. So I, I I'm I'm fascinated by the acting. I'm fascinated by all that stuff. But I'm an old English lit major, and you know what they say okay. about English lit majors? They have a book inside of them, and that's where it should stay. <laughs> I disagree. If you have a book inside of you, you need to get it out. 
You know what I've been, and I've been trying to do because somebody said, you just need to write. You need to sit down and you just need to write. And the stuff that you'll write will suck out loud and you'll probably, nobody will ever see the day of it. But you have to learn the process of lighting, writing. Is that what you did? Pretty much. And with these books that I wrote, um, I originally was writing, you know, I was writing spec scripts and I was writing screenplays. And I had this story idea that I wasn't really sure what to do with. So I got it out one day of like my drawer of ideas, you know, I'll work on something today. And as I was developing what it was going to be, I realized this might be a book. I've never written a book before. Let's see what happens. Wow. You realize that that's where most creative people and you split ways. Right. I mean, most brilliant really? creative. Yeah. They have the book of the, they have the ideas, but 90% of the ideas go nowhere. They well, just, 90% of my ideas go nowhere also. Yeah, but the fact <laughs> that you would sit down and go, I'm going to try to write an idea. I'm going to sit down and try to write a screenplay. I'm going to sit down and try to figure out how to extrapolate upon this idea. Uh, because I've met with, I've talked to so many different people. I've met so many different people. The majority of them, sometimes their talent gets pulled along by other people, but rarely do they sit down and go, let's see if I can create something from this idea. You, you don't realize that that's pretty damn special. I, it's just kind of the way my brain works, I guess, or doesn't work. Um, I like how they say like an idle mind is the devil's playground or something like that. Mm-hmm. I can't not be doing something like this. See, now so maybe that's why I get the impression that I work so hard because I'm constantly just doing something. Because you do work hard. It, that's not the impression. You do work hard. I mean, the fact that you, that you write these books and okay, we're going to go down the, we're going to go down the audiobook narration because I am fascinated by audiobook narration. I am. I, I'm just, I, I, I listen because I, I run, right? And the only way right. I can make myself run is to distract myself from the sheer horror that <laughs> is running. actually running. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if you listen to music, it becomes a measurement of time, right? So you start going, I just need to listen to six more songs. I need to do eight more songs today, you know, and, and there's nothing that's joyous, but if you're listening to a book and by the way, I, I'm going to be listening to yours. I've, I've got you by the first book, oh, which is the one about the dead girls. It's a, the, no, the dead boy and the girl. Uh, yeah, it's about a ghost who falls in love with the girl living in the house he's haunting. Yeah, so I have I have d- downloaded that, and I'm going to be sent back and, and listening to those. But I'm also excited about the whole Orion abduction. I'm going to get that because I'm a sci-fi geek. But I just figured oh, I, I saw all these I saw all these reviews of these of these books, the crossover series, the apparition, or whatever, and, and everybody's like, "Oh, these are great!" And the fact that you're narrating them. Come on. Yep. Come on. That is that is next level busy. <laughs> it, it, well, fortunately, the past couple of years, I had a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> so. Where do where do the ideas come from? I like explain to me, explain to me. So, OK, let's go. Let's go over the the ride, the abduction. Where did that idea okay. come from and how do you build upon it? And how do you create that world? So the idea came from, I mean, I've always been fascinated with like aliens and UFO stories and that sort of thing. So I wanted to write one. Um, And I wrote these stories uh, largely for my kids who are now grown and out of the house, but you know, they're avid readers. And so I wanted to give them something to read as well. Um, But I also wanted to write something that I would enjoy also. Um, 
so I've always been fascinated with like aliens and UFOs and abductions and other culture kind of things like that. And I was just sitting down and like taking what I was learning and just trying to construct what I thought would be an interesting story around it. Like why would aliens be abducting us and why would uh, people try to cover it up and like, so who's working with whom and what's the story and then what's the mythology around it and how do I weave all these things together uh, into a story that's based on actual events, based on mythology, based on uh, just what I think would be a fun read uh, and try to piece it all together. And it's, it's maddening. I've torn my hair out quite a bit. <laughs> is the hardest part coming up with the story outline or is it actually creating the characters to represent individual realistic people in your mind? It's hard to say because when you put it like that, it makes it sound like, okay, I do one thing and then I do another thing and then I do another thing, and which maybe some writers do and maybe that's the way I should do it. I, I don't know. I'm making this all up as I go. I'm here to tell you what you're doing wrong, Dylan. That's what I'm here <laughs> so, since, with, since I can't do, I criticize. Right. Of course. Those who can't do teach. Uh, I... uh so in, in writing this one, and this one, in writing uh, the Orion abduction, this took place over the course of a few years just because life got in the way. And um, so I just pick it up and put it down. But story points would come and go. Characters changed. Characters came and went. Um, so I'd add characters. I'd get rid of characters. I'd combine characters. Just whatever would help serve the story and get me to where I needed it to go. So it all just kind of like meshed in at once and I would find it along the way. Like I had a basic outline of points I wanted to hit and where I wanted things to go and themes I wanted to address. Now, how do I create a coherent story with compelling characters to tell it? And it just evolves along the way. I discovered them along the way. I find it fascinating because it sounds easy the way you're saying it. And I'm telling you right now to create a character, to create three characters. Do yourself a favor. Try to write a short story where you have three characters talking to each other. The truth of it is there's a 98% probability it's going to sound like the same three people who are talking. To create three distinct characters is amazingly hard, much less 20 or 30. And I'm not going to say I'm very good at it either. Half the time, I feel like most of my characters, yeah, they sound like different versions of me. But other times, they don't. Like, well, because for instance, like the first, like the main character in the Apparition series is a teenage girl. Uh-huh. I am not a teenage girl, but I basically based it off my daughter. So people say, you know, you were never a teenage girl. How do you have this insight? It's like, well, I, I paid attention. So, you know, that's really that, where it comes from. Isn't that the biggest? I always tell everybody that's the biggest secret a man can use when it comes to arguing with a woman. If you will listen and pay attention because they're not expecting you to. Yeah, right. Right. I, Because I, I, my wife knows that about me because she'll go, oh, yeah, well, I said and I'll go, no, no, no. You said four days ago this, this and this, you know, and then she realizes, oh, hell, he was paying attention. That that's that's when things go that's when things go sideways. But because <laughs> now you've corrected her, and while you may be right, you're also wrong. Absolutely. Well, 
when you're creating these characters, I'm also fascinated by when you do the audiobook narration. Because now you truly do. It's one thing for you to write it, and it's one thing for them to be voiceless, right? That they're that they're words on a page. But when you have to turn them into, for lack of a better term, real people, right? Mm Because now they have to have a voice. How in the world do you do that? That comes from uh, a background in acting and theater and, you know, study of voiceover, too. A lot of it is imagining where the, you know, imagining that character and how they carry themselves and where they would place their voice. Because some people will talk from their chest. Some people talk very high in their head. Some people like talk in the back of their throat. Some people are very forward. And you try to find out, you know, what kind of person that is, where would they speak from? And I can just whenever I speak for that character, I'll place my voice in a different spot. If they, you know, I try not to do too many accents because I can only do a couple. And I, and I never like, and I never like dip really into like making it a character voice. They're just like kind of tweaks of my own just to represent the character. If that makes sense. I, uh, I base my approach to it off of, in my opinion, the goat of audiobooks, Jim Dale, who did, who did the, you know, the Harry Potter series. And there's so many characters in that. He's doing all these voices and they're just slight tweaks, but they're very distinct. So I used him as a model. You know, because I'm a, I'm a big audiobook fan, as I told you. Uh, mm-hmm. Some underrated. You know, to me, uh, here's some old school names that you will uh, uh, completely forget. Uh, Darren yeah. Darren McGavin. Do you remember Darren McGavin? That sounds vague. The Night sure. Stalker. He was the Night Stalker. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Uh, he read back in the 70s and 80s. He read the John D. McDonald, Travis McGee mysteries. Okay. He is amazing. He is absolutely amazing. And do you, again, these are going to be way past you because I'm older than you, but you remember laugh in, you remember the, you remember, I'm sure you remember some of the clips you've seen Artie Johnson, the guy who would go, oh, sure. I, I know he read the Confederacy of Dunces. It is nothing short of a masterpiece. Ooh, I'll look that up. And he creates all of these things. Now, when you say Jim Dale, Jim Dale is is an amazing narr- uh, audiobook narrator. Uh, yeah. I got some other names for you. Do you know of Ray? Okay. Do you know of Ray Porter? I feel like I know the name. What's he read? Ray Porter has read everything. Ray Porter is possibly yeah. the hottest. He's the guy who you have to apply to him to get your book read because he will tell you no because there's just too much stuff. Uh, but Ray Porter has read the Joe Ledger series. He's read the Peter Klein science fictions. Uh, he's read, I mean, there's just so many things. And, right. he's, and he's the guy who creates these, he will do a different voice for everybody. And it's crazy good. The uh, the Joe Ledger series, there's, there's the four main characters and each one of them have a completely different voice with a completely different accent and it's stunning just yeah i'm not that good uh well me neither but i mean (laughs) it's but you got that and then there's scott brick who does what i think you do scott just adds different inflections to how they read he doesn't create new voices for them but he will find that place and but he has a very distinctive way of reading 
And it's it's kind of slow. And there's some very Dick Hill just retired. Dick Hill, you could look him up and stuff. He's got the most bizarre way of talking. But within like a minute, you're hooked. When you say the bizarre way of talking, now I'm just imagining like Christopher Walken doing audio. (laughs) He just he talks slow and just has a different way of doing. So like he did the, uh, you know, the Michael Connolly, uh, uh, yeah. you know, the, 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 I can't remember his name, the Harry Bosch things. He was the original yeah. reader of Harry Bosch. He was the original reader of Jack Reacher. Right. Right. And so yeah. you can go out and find him. And again, you'll go, wow, it's such a peculiar way of talking. It is. It's a peculiar way, but you're like, okay. And after a minute, a, you're like, I'm all in. And it's a hook. Yeah. It hooks you in. It's, it's, it's just crazy. And, and, you know, as an actor, and that's the thing I, I find there are, there are a number of actors who I will be honest with you are not very good audiobook readers. I listened to the samples of your work and I enjoyed it. That's why I bought the book. That's why I got oh, it on my queue because I listened to you and I'm like, I like the way he's doing this. I like the way he's presenting it. And you speak so clearly. Thank you. Well, I mean, this is something. Was this was this a gift you always had, or was this addiction in when your theater things just being pummeled into you? I I want to. I mean, maybe it's something I've always had, but considering I've been doing theater most of my life, it's probably also quite just habit and training, and just that's now how I speak. Wow! See, that's so cool. And I mean, and and then. If if you don't mind, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take a quick break and I'm going to come back because uh, I'm going to pay for this. I'm going to come back and and talk <laughs> to more with Dylan White right after this. On more of Here's What We Know right after this. So I want to tell you about our new sponsor, The Gym Guys. I have been working out with them for over a year now. It all started with a pandemic and there was no place to go. The gyms were closed, all that kind of stuff. I found The Gym Guys because they come to you. The commute is theirs. Isn't that one of the worst parts working out is you have to factor in the commute time? Not with The Gym Guys. And it's more motivating. It's one thing to say, I'm going to work out today. It's another thing if you know, like, I have Luciana coming over today at 11.15. I got to be ready for it. And then they change the workouts up for you. They give you an app so when you're working out on your own, you know how to do it right and what you're trying to do. And they also give you access to a nutritionist. It's all there for you. You can take it as, you know, if you're just starting your journey or maybe you want to take your journey to the next level. Maybe we've got a contest on how you can win 100 free sessions with your friends and coworkers. It's at TheBiggestMover.com. TheBiggestMover.com. But you'll find the gym guys on the web. G-Y-M-G-U-Y-Z. So back with Dylan White. And here's the thing. As I was saying, actor, writer, audiobook writer, a reader, narrator for famous commercials that you can look up his website. It's amazing. Here's the other thing. Comedian and very funny comedian. And I was wondering, maybe that fed into your diction because you got to be able to hear the jokes, guys. There is a lot of that is a lot of it. Um, He says stumbling over his words. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it's not just it's also not so much hearing the words especially with comedy it comes down to an economy of words how much can you say with as few words possible and tone and inflection play a lot into that 
That's where new comics... the words themselves that are funny, it's what's behind them. That's where new comics fail, right? I mean, that's their blind spot, huh? In terms of what? And the fact that they try to to say too much instead of giving things the space. Right, you need to give things space. You need to have, like, an economy. Well, an economy of words, too, just in terms of just the technicality of comedy, you want to get more laughs per minute or per set as you can. And if it takes you too long to get to your next punch or your next, you know, laugh line, you'll lose an audience. When you, when you sit down and, and write the jokes, and I always love this. Did you ever see that Seinfeld documentary where it showed how he, yeah. remember he wrote all these things down and he's got them till today, right? Where yeah. he would sit back and work on these jokes and refine these jokes. Is that the same thing you do? Do you sit down and just start going, all right, I'm going to read the paper. I'm going to look at this and here's a topic and I'm going to write something. I'm, I'm going to write a joke out of this right here and see if it works. That's, Probably the hardest part is, and that goes the same with like novel writing or whatever, is actually just like sitting down and getting in that headspace and and doing it. Um, And it takes a while to get into that headspace when you sit down. A lot of times I will come up, I will have ideas just in conversation, or if I'm out driving, I'll see something that makes me think, okay, that could be a good premise for a joke. Or somebody will say something funny. I'm like, what's the twist on that that I could make? And I'll make a mental note of it. Or if I'm in a place, I can jot it down. That's when I'll go back and work on that. It's very rare. I say, okay, I'm going to sit down and pick a topic and write something about it. Something has to trigger it first, and then I'll make a note, and then I'll go back. When you perform, I mean, I mean, how... How often do you go out and do the late night open mics or, you know, at the at the small clubs, just trying to gauge the reaction and finding out if you're using the right words? I'm out every week. Um, probably, again, not as much as I should, but I'm out uh, three, four nights a week, uh, different open mics, trying stuff out and figuring it out. The difficult part about open mics is a lot of time you're just performing for other comics. And not that that's a bad thing, because it's just they're there to work on their stuff also, so they're not 100% invested in what you're doing. So you're not necessarily getting, like, the laugh that, I'm saying everything deserves a big laugh, but whatever laugh you do get may not be indicative of the laugh you'll get in front of a paying audience or something like that. (laughs) So that's different. So it's really just a matter of, I, I treat it as a matter of finding the best way to word it and perform it and get it out there. Uh, so it's, it's basically just a rehearsal. Um, like if I were, when I was doing the Aladdin show and we'd bring in, uh, you know, new cast members, each contract and, you know, veteran cast members would stay and we'd work them into the show and in dress rehearsals, we're doing this show in front of each other. We know where the laughs are. We know where the, you know, where they're supposed to be. Sometimes they happen. Sometimes they don't, but you're doing the show for people who really, really know it and get it. So, it's a matter of, that's always just a matter of practice and rehearsal as opposed to trying to get the laugh. I'm just trying to get the technical aspect of it out of the way in the open mic. And then I'll, then I'll find out where it's funny in front of, where it's really funny in front of the pay audience. Remember how I started this podcast off by saying he intimidates me because he's done so many things. If you heard him just gloss over, yes, he was in the Aladdin show at Disney. You did it for what, over 10 years? Just over 10 years, yeah. Okay, and he was 
the genie. And if you want to die laughing, go to his website and take a look. Listen to all the little because they have to update the jokes, all the stuff, all the stuff that Robin Williams did in the movie. That was funny back when it came out in the was it the 80s, the 70s? I mean, you know, Uh That was the early 90s. I think it was 92. Yeah, 92, 78, same thing. Um, But but all of those jokes were topical for those times. And so you update them and listen. I listened to when you did the whole, the the Disney villain thing. And I was right there with the audience. You know, off the clip you have on your website. My gosh, that's funny. Well, and I'll tell you something about that clip, and you're not going to believe me. That whole Disney villain clip on my site, that whole rant that I do about that, I had never performed before. That was at the very final performance of the show. That was the closing performance of the show. And I had never done that bit before on stage. But everybody knew I was going to do something like to take the show out with a big, uh, you know, bang in that. Mm-hmm. part of the show so i wrote an entirely new set right there and that set's usually just like you know two three jokes you know in and out for the regular show um i did 10 minutes that i'd never done before on stage or since it was all specifically for that show how so the actor that was playing the villain from aladdin that how yeah. that was the first time he had heard it when you were doing it that's the first time anybody on that stage had heard it I would have died. I would have turned into Harvey Corman uh, on the Carol <laughs> Burnett show. I would have. I would have just turned into a big puddle of nothing because I was sitting there listening to it just because I love, you know, when, before I talk to people, I love seeing what all they do. And I was just, I was telling you, I wrote myself a note, Aladdin, fi- uh, the, the, the villain jokes, because everything <laughs> was just bam, bam, bam. And it was so well done and so well this. And I was thinking, wow, how is this guy not dying? And so kudos to the actor who was standing there letting you riff on him because it was nothing short of amazing oh Noel's fantastic in that regard he was a great straight man <laughs> you just and would you did you did you sit down with a team of writers when you would do that because i know you would have to constantly update a lot of the stuff you were doing as the genie was just so you could feel how current it was did you constantly update that it was, yeah, we updated quite a bit. Whenever like something big would happen in uh, the news and pop culture and that sort of thing, we would update things. And it's not so much that we would sit down with writers, uh, because of course I wasn't the only genie. There were several of us. It was four shows a day, seven days a week. That would have killed me. Um, so <laughs> which is how, were, which is why actors get to be hospitalized for exhaustion and roofers never do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it rains, we still do the show. Um, <laughs> So there were two there were two of us during the day. So the four shows would be split up two and two. And every morning, uh, so say if uh, I was the second genie of the day, when I would show up, the first genie would be getting into makeup. And we'd always check in, one, to let them know, hey, I'm here. You don't have to do all four. And two, are you doing anything new today? Have you come up with any new jokes? And we would talk back and forth. So nothing was ever written. We would just kind of like talk things through. It's like, oh, I had an idea for a joke, or I'm going to do this here. And we would share each other's jokes. However, the rule was, if one genie came up with a joke that we all really liked, none of us were allowed to do it until the one who came up with it did it first. Wow. Who like that, that, that kind of like, uh, 
courtesy of the joke writer. Well, it's like an unwritten rule of baseball. Yes. Right? I mean, if, if I come up with a joke and we all like it, then you can't do it until I've done it. Right. I just think that's fascinating. My, uh, I have, I have, my kids are young. I have a 10 and a 12 year old, right? And, uh, so my, uh, my 12 year old, the, the school production of A Lion King, he got to play Scar. Ooh. The villain's so much fun. Well, that's what I told him when he first got Scar. He was like, ah, cause he wanted to be Simba. And I set him down and I said, Hey, babe, in the movie, Scar was portrayed by an actor named Jeremy Irons, possibly one of the greatest actors of his generation. And I said, so I know his name. And, and I said, you have, have you ever heard of him? And he goes, yeah. I said, who played Simba? And he goes, what? I said, who played Simba? He goes, I don't know. I said, exactly. Because the vil- good the movie is only as good as the villain, or it's got to have you've got to have that villain. You've got to have somebody who makes everything revolve around it. I said when they went yes. out, when they had when they had Harry Potter, they knew they had these actors, these kids. So we better surround them by as many great actors as we get. And they went out and got Ralph Fiennes again, possibly the greatest actor of his generation, mm-hmm. because they needed that to be Voldemort. You had to have something. Fantastic to be the villain. Yes. And you need to have somebody who's going to be like just the absolute biggest challenge to your protagonist. Yeah, it has to be there. And, you know, and that's the thing. That's where, where and with Aladdin, everybody remembers the genie because it's great. But the genie succeeds by defeating the villain. Yes. And that's the best. And that's, part. And that's one thing. This goes, this goes to both, this goes to writing and this goes to comedy as well. So you think of, yeah, the genie was great. Everybody remembers Robin Williams as being very, very funny in that role and quick-witted, and he absolutely was. What a lot of people forget, um, and what a lot of genies like lost in the, in the show, and they didn't last because of it, is they forget what really made the genie was the relatability of his situation and the more, quote-unquote, human moments that he had. Because that would ground the character, how much he wanted to be free and how much he rooted for Aladdin, what he connected with Aladdin. Without that, the jokes would just be jokes. If you don't have any sort of like anything like sincere and real behind it, they're not going to mean anything. Well, he was he was a a tragic figure is is what he was. And B, he was truly the conscience of the play. He was Aladdin's conscience. He was constantly telling Aladdin, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and that's what made you when he finally when a, when Aladdin finally realized the only thing that really matters is if I do what I say I'm going to do, right? Yep. If I if I live up to be the man of my word, and then it was like, all right, all right, because I'm okay, I'm bouncing around with you because I am. I'm just fascinated by you, Dylan. Uh, <laughs> what what did you think of the Will Smith uh, uh, genie Aladdin? Didn't see it. Shut up. Couldn't bring myself to see it. Really? Really. Wow. That's fascinating. You know that, right? Uh, People think I'm like horrible for it, too. It's like I couldn't bring myself to see it. And it's nothing against Will Smith personally or anything like that. I just knew he was going to be very Will Smith in the role. And And Robin Williams is the genie to me. And I'm not saying nobody could replace him because... So many people have played the genie in so many different productions, and I'm one of them. And I would never presume to try to be a Robin Williams. But I knew that there was going to be that comparison, and I knew he was just going to be very Will Smith in the role, whereas opposed to Robin Williams got to do 
he was very Robin Williams, but he just did so much more with it. And I just couldn't bring myself, I, I would not be able to see, and again, it helped that it was a cartoon, so you see the genie. I would not be able to not see Will Smith. That makes 100% total total sense because we, you know, we went and saw it and I saw it and I felt the same thing. Now that you've said it, because you've expressed it better than I thought, he was Will Smith and you kept wanting him to be more Robin Williams, right? Well, not even just, and I don't want to even say more Robin Williams, just something beyond Will Smith. He's very much his persona and he's great in getting out of that in his more serious roles. He's a fantastic dramatic actor. I mean, there's a reason he won Best Actor this year. Mm-hmm. He is so good at disappearing in those roles. But I, I don't want to say it's, I, and I, I can't speak for it. I, I don't know for sure if it's like, you know, it's a crutch or whether he just, he's just so in that wheelhouse of being, you know, cool and funny that it comes so easily to him. And that's what we associate with him so much that it just becomes Will Smith as opposed to the genie. And again, not having seen the movie, it's hard, to, you know, it's really hard for me to say. It's just that I didn't want to, I didn't want it spoiled for me. You're, that was a great point you just made. That's his comfort zone in comedy. And everybody has a comfort zone in comedy, right? I mean, you yeah. think about, yeah. you think about how comedians do it. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld is not going to tell you a racy joke. That's not his comfort right. zone. Uh, by the same token, you could, Stephen Wright, Stephen Wright, he found out how yeah. he could talk like this. He never did any jokes other than that way. And when he would prefer performing an animated movie, which he did, he was always that way it would be that way he would be fascinating to see can you think of any comedians who could break out of the way they do comedy usually i because i'm right off the top of my head i'm I'm racking my brain of like who could surprise you with the way they do comedy like with a different way of doing comedy yeah because i can think of like we said can they do something different i mean you went okay adam sandler great comedic uh great dramatic actor, but you're talking comedy. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, great comedian, great dramatic actor, but his comedy is always the same. Yeah, I don't... You know, I'll bet who could do it? <laughs> Jamie Foxx. That's a good point. I'll Jamie. bet Jamie Foxx could do it. He could, he could do so many different styles. I'll bet he could do it and be really funny. That's brilliant. We need to find that. I mean, if they ever do it again, or if they do it as an animated movie again, yeah. Oh my gosh. Holy moly. See, that's that's thinking outside the box right there, Dylan. That that is fascinating to me. I I, I love that because usually you have to bring an actor in to do it completely different, right? Uh, because right. it's it's it, and that way because they they'll shatter that image. But comedians, you're so right. They they fall into that familiar pattern. And and I even even Robin Williams toward the end of his career whenever he would do stand up it wasn't that you could see he was trying to do it differently. But it's hard. Right. It's hard. Yeah, you find what and a lot of times too with a comedian you find your voice, you find what it is you do like and then that becomes your brand. And people say, "Okay, I'm going to go see a John Mulaney show. I know what I'm going to get with a John Mulaney show or I know what I'm going to get when I go see Taylor Tomlinson or you just you get that voice, you get that style, and then to really shake it up and to do something different, that's a big risk for a comedian. It is. I and and you just mentioned two people I love. I, I had Taylor Tomlinson on. I talked to her, and she's she's so funny, right? Oh, she's so funny. Yeah, and when you talk to her away from comedy, it's kind of she's like most most comedians. She's a lot more reserved than you expect her to be. It's not that she's she's not timid. She's just you know she's not the person who's going to be 
on stage. Right. right. And, and yet some people are, I remember I've had, I had Richard Lewis in studio and I had, uh, uh, Tracy Morgan in studio. They are that person on stage. DL Hughley. He is that person on stage. Oh, I don't know how you can get through a conversation with Tracy Morgan and not just be laughing every 20 seconds. He was so funny and so distracted. He was so distracted. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens with Tracy Morgan is you're trying to get him to focus on you, right? <laughs> and, and, but he is. He's just that guy, that way of talking that anything he says turns into funny. He could be telling you about, you know, six died in a submarine accident. And he doesn't mean for it to be funny, but it's going to be funny. Yeah, and he's funny. And <laughs> yeah, and like you said, like the way he's distracted, too, it's just like talking to him. It's just like squirrel. <laughs> These, there's some, who, who do you like, Sid? Because I find your comedy funny, and you've mentioned that. I think John Mulaney's very funny. And it's, again, it's the way he talks. Come on now. It's the way, it's the way he brings it. <laughs> yes, exactly. A lot of it's in the delivery. <laughs> the delivery matters. I I I think there's just so many fun uh, so many fun things out there that you know people who are doing good work and it's hard comedy is so hard but we pay you look look how much we pay Chappelle and Ricky Gervais and my God we just want to laugh we want to want people to be not afraid to say stuff right and that's very difficult nowadays oh, man. because you never know what's gonna you know offend someone or set somebody off and honestly if you're going to a comedy club um just be prepared that somebody's going to say something that might not sit with you but in 10 minutes it's going to be over and it'll be somebody else that you might like exactly right or they're going to say something i i go to a comedy club and i go to a comedy club i don't know if i laugh harder than when somebody is making fun of my beliefs or the way i approach life because to me that's the true joy of it right because i love it when people point out my blind spots i really do yeah a lot of people don't and i think they've lost sight of what it means to make fun of something we have we've given that such a negative connotation oh you're making fun of me and i should be upset about that no we're making fun the key word is fun to not take things so dang seriously because we're only here for as long as we're here and you don't know how long that is so we might as well enjoy it while we're doing it i mean that doesn't mean that everything's funny and you know serious things aren't going to happen but man if you're going out for the night just to get away from it all yeah, let all that go. Everybody want to be angry. I, I, I'm, I'm always shocked by how many people in society just long to be angry. And I'm constantly trying to run away from my anger. I don't always succeed, but I'm constantly trying to. But that's what's, that's what's fun about comedy, too, is comedy is a lot of time an expression of anger or frustration or... You know, so it's not always, hey, you know, the joke is, yes, it's funny, but it, it's a lot of times coming from a place of... Uh, anger or annoyance or frustration or just struggling to understand something just make sense out of the nonsensical or make something or point out the nonsensical of things that allegedly make sense. <laughs> Can I, I twisted that into a pretzel, didn't I? Did any, I'm talking about things making sense and I'm making no sense while I'm saying it. 
okay because I'm like, I was sitting here thinking, I, 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 I'm trying to find a way to shift gears with you right now because I want to go back to something we were talking about and you're going to go, what the hell? We were talking about that a long time ago, all right? But I want to get back to this little science fiction thing. What, what's your take on life? Do you, are you convinced it's out there? Do you think it's been here? So I lean heavily towards that it's out there and that it is likely it may very well have visited us. Um, when it comes to like a lot of beliefs like this, I, I've decided like the older I've gotten, I'm definitely more fluid. I don't believe anything 100%. Certain things I've, I've gotten to the point where I will say it wouldn't surprise me if with a lot of things, because I hate to think that I, with, you know, the way I've grown up and what I know or whatever, that I am so arrogant to think that I know anything 100% for sure. I respect that. I I think I think yes, given the amount of numbers, right? That that there has to be some sort of intelligent life and that's the hard thing. The intelligent life is the demarcation life. life. Yeah. yeah, because there's certainly none here, so maybe it's somewhere else. <laughs> there there's life out there, but everything that happened to happen for us to be here, right? It, it, literally when you start doing the calculations, billions of things had to happen for you and I to be having this conversation right now. But exactly. But the other side of it is and I always say this caveat because people ask me what do you think and i'm like my thing is is space is so vast the human Mm -hmm. mind cannot wrap its head around how vast space is that it would you know the the uh, the 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 vehicle that went by pluto and i can never remember its name new horizons remember when new horizons went by pluto it took how many years to get to pluto 11 years to get to pluto something like that Mm -hmm. 11 years that's just our solar system yeah going thirty-two thousand miles an hour thirty-two thousand miles an hour took 11 years to get past the Oort cloud, which is the big bubble that surrounds our solar system at going 32,000 miles an hour will take another 240 years. Yep. That's our solar system. And we're just a little dot in our galaxy. And our galaxy is just a little dot in the universe. Matter of fact, just a mm-hmm. little dot in our section of the universe. So, yeah. And and with the way space is expanding, even if there is life out there, it's getting farther away at the tune of hundreds of thousands of miles a minute. Right. right? And and so And we also come at it with the rubric of, you know, if there is life out there, we're judging it from based on what our life looks like and how our life developed. And so all of those other factors would have to come into play to create life like this. Because space is so vast and because there's so many things within physics and um, quantum physics and everything that we just don't understand, life may develop elsewhere, but it may not develop at all the way this life this life is developed and or look at all like it. I mean, who knows what it's going to be? We're just coming out of this is our experience. So this is what we're based. We're saying this is the baseline. We could be the outlier. Everything else could be completely different. And, you know, and we're the weird ones. We don't know. 
Yeah, see, I, and that's just, it's just fascinating to me when you go down that thing. But then you get little weird things like you've seen the Pentagon, the the the, the little tic-tac lights that are going beyond yes. anything that we can do. And then, and then did you just see this came out this week? Remember the Voyager 1? The Voyager 1 spacecraft, uh-huh. it's the farthest, it's it's 25 billion miles from the Earth right now. Farthest thing in man has ever right. done. For the last couple of months, it has been signing, sending back these weird signals saying that it is somewhere else in space instead of where we know it to be. And it should have turned off with the computer recognized that something was wrong. It has a safe mode. The computer is not turned off. Everything else it's sending us has been absolutely correct, except its location. And that bizarre because, and it's well, it's bizarre when you think about it from our perspective of this is the way we think things work. Mm-hmm. What this is telling us is that the way we think things work may not be the way things work. Space and time is very, very strange. We have our understanding of it, but we we keep coming to this point as humans, just going, "This is how it is," and then something else happens that challenges that. We think, well, that's just, you know, we'll dismiss it as like weird or an outlier or something's wrong until eventually we get to the point where it's like, oh, no, wait, we have a new understanding of it. It's like that scene from Men in Black, the first one. Again, going back to Will Smith, um, where Tommy Lee Jones is trying to talk him into joining Men in Black. Yeah. And he said, they're sitting there on the bench. I can't remember the lines exactly. It's like, you know, however many years ago, everybody knew the earth was flat. And however many. People knew that the sun, that the Earth was the center of the universe, and up until ten minutes ago, you knew that we were alone in the universe. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. <laughs> See, it's a good line. I like that. Yep. And, and I just nerd out. I do. I just nerd out. I I, I saw this thing. Somebody sent me because I talked about this, and somebody sent it to me. There's something in the Kuiper Belt, right? That it's mm-hmm. about the size of the state of Delaware. It's spinning 50 rotations a minute. If it was rock, it would have spun itself apart. It also glows every five hours. And they sent a probe out there last year. When the probe got up to it, the probe turned off. And then once the probe was past it, the probe turned back on. That's a true story. That's from NASA. That's crazy. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that I just nerd out. And since you had a science fiction bent, I look for people that I can nerd out with, Dylan. <laughs> well, feel free. We can nerd out anytime you want. You are part of my nerd tribe now, my friend. I'm happy to be so. Yes, let's do it. Dylan White, I have so enjoyed this conversation. I I, so I, I knew I would, and I, I would hope <clears throat> I would hope that you would do it again with me. Absolutely. You let me know. I'll be there. I am all in. Dylan White, DylanWhite.com. Got y'all check out his stand-up and everything. This guy, this guy does everything. I have just so enjoyed it. Thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe, download a few more episodes, and please leave a review. Reviews really help us get this out to more people like you. Also, we'd love to hear what your favorite part was. Be sure to join us on social media to engage in even more unexpected conversations. Until next time.